I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Do I accept? I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days and Exploration Podcast. For those of you that are regular listeners, you may have noticed that this episode is a tad shorter than our typical 90 minute plus excursion. And that's because it's what we like to call a mini-sode. You may have encountered one or two in your podcast feed before, but if you're not familiar, in a mini-sode, one of our hosts takes the reins to tell a story about not just a particular place, but also a specific time in history. In this episode, in the spirit of all things festive, Mark is going to introduce you in his own very particular way to a tale that has been on his mind a lot recently, and you'll find out exactly why towards the end of this episode. If you're a new listener and you're looking for a more typical festive episode, you can check out our previous take on Lapland, the home of St. Nick, which you should be able to find in our back catalogue. We are also asking listeners to fill out a survey on some of our most recent episodes. So if you want to gift us a very early Christmas present, follow the link in the show notes and we really appreciate your feedback. We'll be back on track with a usual bumper-length episode in February. But for now, allow me to wish you a Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, or simply festive season. Thank you once again for all your support this year, and we'll catch you in 2019. So, this is my second minisode. Uh, a minisode where my disgustingly enormous ego grabs the reins of our audio chariot and drives it into a ravine of my own hubris. Or, I guess the chariot could be a balloon because of, uh, branding. If you recall, the last one I did was on Runnymede, which, due to the Magna Carta, was briefly the centre of the civilised world. It was kind of a personal episode, as it's my adopted locality. Not as personal as, like, personal grooming, but more personal than, say, a personal pizza. Uh, personal pizzas, which are not, in fact, personal, but just small. Um, that's the level of personalness that I, I, I want to nail my colours to the mass there, in between those two. Now, I've lived in a few other places uh, that I could do for just such a personal episode, but actually, um, I thought that rather than profiling a tiny Japanese village with a surprising amount of heavy industry... I thought there might be new ways to make this mini-sode personal. So, personal thing the first. This mini-sode will have a personal, personal guest star to introduce you to later on. Da-da-da-da! And the second thing is that personally, I've always had a fascination with a specific moment in history. Ever since I heard about it as a young chickadee, uh, in history class in County Kerry in Ireland. So since I have my own mini-sode, I want to uh, satisfy my considerable curiosity to scratch that historical itch um, about this moment th that has lingered low these many years. Welcome to Portugal, in the 1400s. This place was fast becoming one of the major economic powers in the world. This was, in large part, due to their expansion of influence down the west coast of Africa. Being ideally placed on the far west of Europe, 
This allowed them to exploit their access to West Africa, allowing them to expand their wealth through the trade and capture of gold and people. People that they enslaved. Indeed. Just because it was a different time doesn't mean they weren't complete jingle bellends. As well as enjoying the sunshine and reducing people to the status of property, they had another great love. Spice. And the Portuguese wanted more than anything else was to find a route to India. India is a world in itself. I myself have sampled the Indian life, albeit briefly. This is, I say, but there's a personal pizza level of personal. I spent a quarter of uh, my time there deathly ill. Uh, the smog made me feel like I was breathing gravel. And, well, I don't know if you've ever uh, experienced or heard of a thing called rice back. Well, apparently the unaccustomed metabolism can, when overwhelmed by rice, rapidly turn rice into skin flaps. It's not my best look, I'll admit, and not my, my most attractive time. But these Portuguese weren't in it for the rice backs. They wanted that spice back. They did. For centuries, if you wanted spice, it needed to come over the land, going through many massive areas controlled by Muslim people, the people of the Middle East and Central Asia and so on, in order to get it. This presented some challenges to this supply line, like when the Christians of Europe tried to kill all of the aforementioned Muslims in multiple crusades. Plus, if Muslim traders were going to carry spice all the way from India, they were obviously going to ask to be paid for it. So, towards the end of the 14th century, the Portuguese, determined to open up their own route to India, pushed further and further down the western coast of Africa. Prince Henry the Navigator, the gloomy-looking third surviving son of King John I of Portugal, was a big cheerleader for Portuguese expansion and exploration. Indeed, a giant statue of him currently stands just outside Lisbon, gazing out across the ocean. And one of the big frontiers Henry had his eyes set on was the southernmost tip of Africa. Just the tip. Joe really didn't want to set me up for that joke, but um, he's been a good sport. Thanks, Joe. The tip was uh, passed by one Bartolomeo Diaz. In 1487, he set off and rounded the Cape and made it along the southern coast of modern-day South Africa. He'd wanted to try and go all the way to India, but his crew lost their bottle and demanded he return home, or they would get well stabby, so home he went. In rounding the Cape of Good Hope, however, he had definitely proved that the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans were connected, contrary to what many European geographers speculated. This opened the possibility of a new route to India, and was the key to breaking the monopoly of Arab and Venetian spice traders, although Diaz himself wouldn't be the man to do so. Ten years later, Vasco da Gama, the chief player in this Yuletide tale, emerged onto the scene. He had been hand-selected to lead the charge into the unknown, and go further than any European had before in pursuit of those sweet, sweet spices. Diaz, the master, helped his apprentice to construct three ships, the São Gabriel, São Rafael, and São Miguel. These were designed to be the first European ships to sail to India, with the aim of establishing this new trade route, and these guys were determined to see it done. Da Gama, for his part, was already a man with a formidable reputation. He was the son of a knight and explorer, 
and he had spent much of his early life on the sea. He'd ridden alongside the future king, John II, in the Order of Santiago, an order of knights sworn to protect Portuguese pilgrims. Upon ascending the throne, John had recruited the Gama for a number of royal missions, as he sought to expand Portugal's presence around the globe. When the task of establishing a trade route across the Indian Ocean came up, the Gama was the first name on the king's list. There's a written account of the Gama's voyage, which I read for this, and ballerly it begins, In the name of God. Amen. The Gama and his crew, consisting of four ships with a total crew of 170 men, set off from Restello near Lisbon on Saturday the 8th of July, 1497, passing Lanzarote down the coast. It took a number of months for them to reach the southern end of the African continent. On November the 4th, they sighted what was then known as the Bay of St. Helena, around 125 miles, or 200 kilometres, north of the Cape of Good Hope. And they went ashore to collect some wood and refresh their provisions. They ran into some of the locals who, and I quote, okay, I, just to say, I'm, I'm quoting here, but I do feel enormously uncomfortable about how they describe the people that they met. They describe them as tawny-coloured, their food is confined to the flesh of whales, seals, and gazelles, and the roots of herbs. They are dressed in skins and wear sheaths over their virile members. Vasco by name, penis noticer by nature, as it turns out. They began to have more contact with the locals, which did not go amazingly. One of the sailors was permitted to go and have dinner, and what started as dinner turned into the locals chasing him to the shore throwing spears and actually injuring Dagama himself. Well, I don't know, it doesn't say how he was injured, but um, is there a, such a thing as a superficial spear injury? I'm not really totally sure. B-O-T-B, back on the boat. Dagama and his party continued southward. On November 18th, they came upon an enormous bay, six leagues wide and six leagues deep. They come to False Bay, not far from present-day Cape Town, and not much further along the coast than 100 kilometres north of the Cape of Good Hope. About halfway along their route from here to the southernmost tip of Africa, they stopped for 13 days. And they took this opportunity to break down the store ship that had been sailing along with them and transferred its contents to the other ships. They encountered another group of locals, and by their own account, the Gamma's crew got the feeling that this group had been briefed by the last group that they'd met. The spears and the injuries and all that fun stuff that just happened. They were not that far by land as it happens, maybe only 60 miles from where they'd met those people, so I, I guess it's possible. They weren't going to make the same mistake again, however, of being too easygoing, and they went ashore with crossbows. They managed to communicate that they would only allow to be approached singly, one by one, so as to prevent being overwhelmed if things went south. Mm -hmm. They gave little bells to the locals, pretty patronisingly, and they got ivory bracelets in return, which told them there were elephants nearby. And plenty of them with a view to cash money get. On December the 2nd, 200 locals came, with cows and oxen, and began playing flutes. Weirdly, they say, the music was, and I quote, a pretty harmony for Negroes who are not expected to be musicians, which is a weird bit of, you know, insult to throw there. Just don't, don't be such a jerk. 
Why'd you have to... Ugh. Anyway, everyone, including Dagama, started dancing, and he orders the trumpets be sounded. Sound those trumpets, but in Portuguese is what he said. In a classic colonial move, they bought an ox for some beads, and found him very fat and his meat as toothsome as the meat of Portugal, which I think amounts to ten Portu thumbs up for these guys. The next day, women and children came, but the young men stayed in the bushes. The locals then scattered their cattle, and Agama got spooked and started to pull his men out. He had a pretty recent bad experience with this kind of thing. They tooled up with spears, lances, crossbows, donned their armor, as once bitten, and all that. They fired their cannons, and all the locals ran to the bushes, dropping all the skins that they'd been wearing. They later found an island called Seal Island today, which is in the bay of modern-day Cape Town. The seals were enormous, and they couldn't damage them with their spears. For amusement, and I quote, We fired among them with our bombards from the sea. On the same island, there are birds as big as ducks, but they cannot fly because they have no feathers on their wings. These, in case you haven't guessed already, would be penguins. Cute, adorable penguins. Unpleasantly, it goes on. These birds, of whom we killed as many as we chose, are called politicaios, and they bray like asses. The Gama and his men, before setting out again, erected a cross. However, as they were sailing away, they looked back to see the locals already taking it down. Then they hit the final pillar, as it was called. The last marker left by Bartolomeo Diaz, the first man to round the Cape of Good Hope. They were now passing into the total unknown. The date was December the 16th. Now, rounding the Cape nowadays, at a time when you can fly across the continent in the time it takes to watch Paul Blart Mall Cop and eat a soggy sandwich, might not sound like a lot. But remember, this was 1497, and a cape still presented a formidable challenge. Thousands of sailors had lost their lives in attacks and shipwrecks were trying to reach India for years before this point. Added to that, navigating around an entire continent was an enormously tricky task, and something that had only just been achieved nine years earlier, and hadn't been attempted by anyone else since. Diaz, after his dicey encounters at the cape, had named it the Cabo das Tormentas, or Cape of Storms. In a clever bit of marketing, our old friend John II later spun that into Cabo de Boa Esperanza, or Cape of Good Hope. But it was far from a hopeful place. In 1500, a few years after the Gama, Diaz himself would be drowned near the Cape, along with all of his men, in an attempted voyage to India. So, unsurprisingly, the Gama's men almost immediately ran into difficulties with winds pushing them against their preferred direction. Several days later, they made for land and realized they had actually been pushed backwards by about 30 kilometers. They set out again and did not make landfall until December the 25th. Christmas Day. They went ashore and called the land Natal, or Christmas, 
as it translates to. It also happens to be the English word for relating to birth, as in natal, uh, which is why we talk about the nativity at Christmas. They performed some repairs to the mast, which had become cracked, and began cooking food and salt water as they were down to about 400 mils of water a day for their drinking rations. Now, I read the whole account of Dagama's journey because I knew he landed in Natal on Christmas and named it so. And even though he was on the other side of the world doing something completely groundbreaking and that no other European had ever done before, the story of the birth of Jesus carries such resonance, such significance, that he still took a moment, big moment, to recognise the significance of Christmas Day. I heard this story, learning about Tagama when I was 13, and it stayed with me all these years since. Now, that's the first personal part of this personal pizza Portuguese podcast. That this was one of my personal wonderings that stuck with me through the years. I wanted to know what he was thinking, what he said and what he, how he commemorated this event that resonates throughout human history so much that it gave him pause to contemplate, despite his momentous ongoing endeavours at the time. And? Well, there's not exactly, actually, any record of him saying anything about it. Which, as much as that might be disappointing to you, think of me for a second. I read that whole poxy book just to find out what momentous guff he'd spouted. Maybe a reference to us discovering Christianity through Jesus and Europe had been discovered in Eastern Africa and beyond through him. Well, wouldn't that have been great? I have a nice little neat package, Christmas package. Oh, even a ribbon around it, etc. I really got screwed here, guys. <laughs> I guess my point. Uh, I read a book for nothing. Ugh, the worst. The Gamma called the land Natal, and apparently was mute on any other aspect or emotion uh, surrounding this, and then just moved on, really. But the name stuck. The British would go on to call their colony Natal in the 1820s, when they turned out to boss everyone around and steal their gear. British style! And the name extends even today with one of the nine provinces of South Africa still called KwaZulu-Natal. And now you're thinking, I mean, I'm thinking, you must be thinking it, where is the story here? Uh, where, is, where is my payoff? Well, as I got to thinking about this, I realised that there is indeed a larger point here, I, I hope. So when I was a kid, I'd be in church. That was before, of course, my presence on holy ground caused me to develop stigmata and, you know crows start to eat each other in the sky and you know, all that stuff. But okay, bear with me. I remember every Easter being told from the pulpit something like, and remember, Easter is the main event, people. Christmas gets all the attention, but it's all about Easter, baby. And even though Easter is, within the Christian tradition, the more significant event, it is the nativity that really captures us. The one that kids are taught about and that actually... Sticks. Doesn't need, doesn't need any pushing. We just kind of accept the Christmas story. Easter has so much going on. It's got crucifixes and cocks crowing, Pontius Pilate, pieces of silver, spears, Iscariot, gardens of Gethsemane, Marys of Magdalene, and all. It's all complicated stuff. It's many levels. The Nativity is about magical baby. Yeah, there's loads of other stuff going on, a star and a few goats and a herd and a census and whatever. 
but there's a simple moment in there. After all the excitement, away in a manger, you have a serene, magical baby loaded with all the potential of life, human society, the universe, whatever. All the stories and histories to come, whereas Easter is just a stop on the road. And I've always thought it's that simplicity of that moment is what puts the nativity so in front of Easter as a story, as a cultural force, because the secret simplicity is that all babies are magic babies. They all come from nothing to become something or everything. They're the vessels we pour our hopes and our dreams and our love and our money until we wither away and the world is never the same one way or t'other. Okay, so there might be another reason that I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Um, I'd like to introduce you to someone. <laughs> so, yeah, you may have heard from my voice that I'm uh, extraordinarily sleep-deprived, over-caffeinated, uh, and, and just generally frantic. And, oh, and the noise you just heard is, is the reason why. I just became a dad to my own magic baby boy. Baby boy, that's you. What do you have to say about that? Oh, not, not, not much yet. Not much yet. He's, he's, he's quite young. And anyway, the magic baby boy has given me a little bit of perspective. Or potentially robbed me of what little perspective I had before. Uh, whatever. Objectively, this is a little organism that, as a starter, yells a bit for main course, then eats a little, and for dessert, does a bunch of poops. And little canopies of other stuff but stories aren't about objectivity and i don't feel objectively about him the Kama's journey would go on and on he became the first european to visit mozambique where he posed as a muslim in order to curry favor with the sultan the lie was found out and they escaped while shooting his cannons left and right like shooty mcgee in mombasa in modern day kenya they would do a little bit of piracy to keep things ticking over and then to Melindi, where they found a guide that bring them across the Indian Ocean to Calicut, or the modern city of Koshikodze in the Indian state of Kerala. He arrived back in 1499 and was pretty popular with the Portuguese. He would make another journey in 1502 and visit Cochin, a city I had the pleasure to visit when I was in India a decade ago. This journey would become notorious for da Gama burning hundreds of Muslim pilgrims to death, which led him to being sidelined until 1524, he returned as a governor, contracted malaria, and promptly keeled over in Cochin, ending the side story that began when he was born 64 years earlier. Hopefully, this little baby won't keel over in Cochin, as both Dagama and his father did. Though in my case, it was due to an infected leg that I had neglected, but uh, inevitably, from this point forward, he will do a bunch of stuff. And a bunch of other stuff will happen to him. But for now, I'm happy to just observe my own quiet nativity wriggling with turds and potential turds, and in some cases just pure potential. So, happy Christmas and Feliz Natal. And that brings us to the end of our year. Once again, thanks to all of you for your support over the past 12 months, especially to our beloved Patreon backers who helped to power the show forward. 
By the way, if you're among that number, you won't be charged at all this month. Consider it an early Christmas present from us to you. Links to all the music and sound effects used in this episode can be found in our show notes. In the spirit of New Year's resolutions, we are collecting feedback on the most recent batch of episodes, our Season 3, so that we can continue to improve and refine the show into 2019. You'll find a link to a quick Google survey in our show notes. Even if you've never written in or interacted with us in any way, we'd love if you could take a moment just to fill it out and let us know what we can do better for you. You are our fans after all, and your opinion matters. We would love to know what you think. Have a wonderful festive season, and we'll see you next year.